0: Hello and welcome to this informative podcast on acne management with dermatologist Dr. Ryan DeCruz from Southern Dermatology in Melbourne. This podcast is delivered in collaboration with Roche posay and CeraVe. Tonight the first talk is going to be all about acne and acne is a condition that as a dermatologist really is our bread and butter we see. Multiple acne patients uh, day to day. And like many of the um, general practitioners here tonight, we're very um, not only interested in it, but it's a condition in which we're constantly striving to achieve excellence for our patients. The main crux of tonight, though, is to really emphasise the impact on quality of life that a condition, a common and age old condition such as acne vulgaris, can actually have on patients. And tonight, I hope to provide both the uh, pharmacists and the general practitioners here with some basic and very uh, hard-hitting tips on how to best manage our patients who present to us with both mild acne, moderate acne, and severe. And we're focusing mainly on the adolescent and adult population. Acne is certainly a condition that is more than skin deep. This is a condition that presents um, most commonly in the adolescent period, but will quite commonly also extend into the adult uh, years. It tends to present slightly earlier in the female Um, demographic, mainly due to adrenarche, which is the onset of androgens being produced by the adrenal glands. And this tends to predate menarchy or the first period, by up to 12 to 18 months. Men tend to uh, develop acne slightly later due to the testosterone surges that occur one to two years after. It's been long considered this teenage problem, and it's very common for for people in the community to think, oh, well, it's it's just teenage acne and Patients, you, you'll grow out of it. It's not that big a deal. We've all dealt with pimples at some point in our life, and it's really common for me to hear patients tell me that that that's what they've been told. Parents say that to me that you know I didn't really pay much attention because I thought they'd grow out of it. But what we know is that acne is a chronic condition. This is something that will quite commonly persist into the adult years. Uh, And is quite commonly being uh, seen in the later years, in the late 30s, 40s and even 50s, uh, when it actually presents as a later presentation when hormonal influences have been removed. And the one I'm talking about in particular is the oral contraceptive pill. And we'll touch on this a little bit later. But the the withdrawal of the oral contraceptive pill quite commonly is the trigger for this concept of late uh, onset uh, um, acne, which accounts for about 20% of patients in their adult years. The reality is, though, that particularly in 2021, when we are a a community and a world that is all over the internet, we have easy access to social media in the palm of our hands, we are a digital age, we are looking at ourselves more than we ever did. And this is a fact that affects not only young young people, as young as 10 and 11 who first have access to iPads and mobile phones, but right through to, to people in their 30s, 40s and their 50s. And it can cause significant psychological and emotional impact on patients with clear evidence suggesting that the risks of depression, anxiety, social phobia and self-harm is far greater if you suffer from acne. It affects the quality of life of teenagers and adults and and good evidence has shown that this can be comparable to chronic diseases such as arthritis, diabetes, asthma and epilepsy. And the problem is that these feelings of despair and distress can actually be far greater than potentially more visible diseases such as psoriasis or atopic dermatitis. And this is where the doctor-patient relationship, or indeed the pharmacist-patient relationship, cannot be underestimated. Because it is we who have medical training, pharmacist training, who have access to prescription medications, can genuinely make the biggest difference to the quality of life of these patients. Ultimately, treating a patient with acne requires a heightened level of empathy, support time and understanding of this chronic disease of the patient. And with that, I'd like to introduce a patient that I met actually quite recently. Freddie was 15, uh, and he's still 15, and came to see me having suffered from what, what he would agree would be mild to moderate acne. But his acne impacted upon him so significantly that it actually triggered quite emotional issues for Freddie, on top of a background of multiple other issues in his life. I was really struck by how um, emotionally aware Freddie was, his insight and his level of maturity, that when the concept of this this dinner actually came up and I was asked by um, Priya whether I had any patients who might wish to come and communicate to you all, Freddie was the first person I, I thought of. And I'm very grateful to him and his mum Ginny that they're here tonight. And I'd like to actually invite Freddie up to come and have a a conversation with me in front of you all. I'm going to ask him a few questions so that you can hear firsthand exactly how a patient with mild to moderate acne uh, feels. Thanks very much for joining me up here, Freddie. Freddie, can you describe how acne changed the way you felt about yourself in the years that you've suffered from it uh, prior to coming and seeking dermatology input?
1: Um, It definitely had a big impact on my self-esteem and how I viewed myself. Um, I suppose it kind of changed quite a lot of my day-to-day life. Literally just getting up and brushing my teeth and looking myself in the mirror could be a challenge. And then I have to go have a day at school, see everyone, have everyone see my face. And you're so you're so aware of yourself when, you, when you're kind of struggling that way. You're kind of thinking about how people see you and how people perceive you and most of the time they're probably not even going to notice. But in my mind and in anyone else's mind who's struggling the same way, it, is, it's a, it
0: has a big impact. And following on from that, what aspects of your physical or mental health, if you feel comfortable t- discussing this, Freddie, um, and of your daily life, did it sort of affect the most, so emotionally and mentally? Um, I suppose kind of in
1: small moments in my life, um, maybe when there's not much happening in the classroom and my mind isn't distracted and thinking about something else, like the classwork ahead of me, uh, it's kind of, it's like a filler and it's kind of always ready to go and to kind of leap into action and um, it really takes a hold of you when, when it does.
0: What sort of support did you have um, in terms of your acne, both from your pharmacist potentially, your general practitioner Uh, anyone who you you sought advice from and and how helpful did you find them
1: um before actually seeing my GP there really wasn't much advice out there it was kind of the internet and me and my (laughs) mum um and that was I had to kind of deal with that for maybe a year and a half two years and then once I saw my GP um that's when things really started to improve and I think that was a really big turning point my um when I was actually speaking to my GP, what I, what I think helped the most is, in, uh, is that she didn't just say, okay, we're going to try this, and then that's it. You're going to go away, and that's going to be that. It was, we're going to try this. If this doesn't work, then we can do something else. Here's how we can do it. This is how long it's going to take. Having that plan and having that kind of, I guess, almost an end result in sight is really in kind of uh, important in terms of not demoralizing myself when you have no end in sight and no plan it's kind of you feel hopeless um and visual cues from her were very helpful that she was nodding and understanding and smiling and saying yep we can take that on that was really important and it kind of helped me feel strong enough to explain to her what was going on in, in my head um
0: I think you've touched on this already, but if you don't mind elaborating, um, what interactions with your healthcare provider, so I think that's your GP and myself or anyone else you've seen, uh, would what made the most impact for you, both positively or negatively?
1: Um, I feel kind of the positive affirmations or re- re- reaffirming things, sorry, um, what were, were really important. She I could tell that she understood and that Ryan understood when I went to see Ryan. It was um it, it definitely improved kind of my mental health and those filler moments when I'm sitting in class, they started to disappear. When I knew I had a plan and I knew I'd have things ahead of me that were going to help, that was that was really important for me. And I think that it's um it's really important that when someone does come and see you, that you do tell them that it we are not going to give up and that we can make it better. If this, if this doesn't work, then we are going to try this and this may work too. If it doesn't, that's
0: fine. We'll try something else. Everyone put their hands together. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much. So, so I'm sure you all agree, I mean, Freddie's 15 and uh, to get that many words from a 15-year-old <laughs> is pretty phenomenal and uh, hence I was so struck by him and, and so grateful uh, to him to be here tonight and give you his honest words. So with that, I'd like to move on to one of the key take-home messages for today, which is it is really important as a healthcare professional to assess the impact on quality of life and how acne can impact on the day-to-day living of both adolescents and acne uh, adult acne sufferers. Um, and to aid with this, we're very fortunate to have a validated 14-question Question, sorry, 14 question and answer self-reported questionnaire that uh, scores the impact of a patient's acne on their quality of life using a visual analogue scale. So this is a, a questionnaire that has been uh, initially um, devised in by a team of dermatologists in France and has been adequately validated in hundreds of patients. It takes less than three minutes to complete and really doesn't require any time from the healthcare professional's point of view because it is simply a questionnaire that you can place in front of the patient either in the waiting room or while you're writing some notes. These sorts of questionnaires can be really eye-opening because you can assess a patient who presents to you with uh, objectively mild to moderate acne. And you might think to yourself, it's not that bad. I see a lot worse. I don't know what they're on about. But this is where actually asking the patient to objectively quantify how it affects them emotionally and physically can be very important and help you stratify your treatment plans. And it provides a standardised and meaningful insights into their emotional state, particularly when communication can be difficult. And we know this of acne sufferers. We know that they are not necessarily going to express in in all the words and, and visual cues that you might like exactly how they feel at that moment in time. And as a busy healthcare professional You've got the last 15 patients that you're thinking about, worrying about, the fact that you're running 50 minutes late, all in the back of your mind. So doing such a scale can actually really help stop you in your tracks and take notice of the patient in front of you. This is the questionnaire that I'm referring to, which is the adult, sorry, acne impact on adult daily life. As I mentioned, it's very quick to to do. And it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, going to be included in your take-home packs tonight. So I really encourage you to have a good look at it uh, and even reach out to the team at La Roche Per If you're looking for any tear-off pads in the future, it will be something that we'll be able to send to your clinics for you to have and use on a day-to-day basis. And in the dermatology sphere, we've been using similar scales to this for psoriasis for for several years and more recently for atopic dermatitis and the Australian government have recognised that quality of life is so important for these conditions that uh, for atopic dermatitis it's actually one of the requirements that we do a a quality of life index score both pre-biologic agent and for a continuation script. So that is actually how much importance we should be placing on scales such as this. So to to finish off my presentation today, there are sort of five things that I I would like you to take home from a uh, dermatologist to general practitioner and pharmacist point of view. The first point is I would like everyone to be able to classify the acne that they're seeing and to stratify it, to identify those patients who have abnormal hormone hormone profiles, to choose the best tolerated uh, retinoid and antibiotic combination for the patient in front of you, and have an understanding of the best adjunctive skin care. And obviously, finally, to recognise when you do need to refer a patient to someone like myself, like Ashling or Francis, whom you'll hear from later tonight. So with regards to acne, there's really three things that I think you need to be able to do with the patient. Identify whether they've got comedonal acne, papulopustular acne, cystic acne, or a combination of the three. And to recognise that comedones, which are enlarged blocked oil glands, actually need a process of extraction. So they need to be physically removed from the patient because it's almost impossible to remove them without a physical therapy in conjunction with medical therapy. To identify those patients who have inflammatory acne versus non-inflammatory acne, and I'll show you some photos in a moment, and to identify the severity of the patient. And I personally never do pustule counts or papule counts, which have been described in the literature. It's either mild, moderate, severe, but more importantly, it's severe in terms of the impact of the quality of life. So that's where a scale, as discussed earlier, is very important. A quick word on the pathogenesis of, pathogenesis of acne. So we know that this is an androgen-dependent process. The androgens, or the male hormones, are the starting point. They work directly on the pilosebaceous unit. And there's a combination of increased and excess sebum secretion, which is very thick and um, sebaceous, so therefore gets stuck very easily. But there's also increased keratin or increased uh, follicular keratinization, which blocks the oil glands. Commodones are a very important part of this pathogenic process. So these are the non-inflamed enlarged oil glands that can either be closed where they look like little what we would call whiteheads, Patients will quite commonly refer to pustules as whiteheads, but as dermatologists, we refer to these closed comedones as whiteheads, and when they are exposed to the environment, they turn black because of oxidation of the sebum on top and turn into a so-called blackhead. After this has occurred, the, the uh, C. acnes uh, bacterium, this is a bit of an older slide, so it's now called Cutibacterium acnes, uh, gets involved, as to a number of other pathogenic bacteria. But there's also an auto inflammatory response. So the immune system identifies these enlarged blocked oil glands as abnormal and in- initiates an inflammatory attack on them. And this can then develop into a, the painful large cystic, cystic acne or nodular acne. Mild acne is something that may never present to a dermatologist or to a general practitioner. This is really in the sphere now of the internet and pharmacists because the internet is a huge source of uh, information, both true and misinformation regarding the causality and treatment options for acne. And we know that the skincare industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. There is a huge amount of money uh, poured in to treatments that have little uh, basis on fact and efficacy and research. The key ingredients contained in skincare for acne that really does have good research uh, is salicylic acid, which is the beta-hydroxy acid, as well as lipohydroxy acid, or LHA, which is the baby of salicylic acid. These ingredients are both keratolytic so that they unblock the clogged uh, pores or pilosebaceous units, they break down the follicular plug and they promote desquamation or exfoliation and it's also anti-inflammatory. LHA is a derivative of salicylic acid that doesn't penetrate quite as deeply and therefore sits in a reservoir in the outer layer of the skin, the stratum corneum, and exfoliates individual corneocytes and it's slightly better tolerated. These are both present in cleansers such as Effaclar and in Effaclar Duo Plus. Comedonal acne, which is the next sort of stage, is the first step in this acne pathogenesis, and it does not require oral antibiotics. So that's really take-home message number one. If you see a patient with comedones, lots of comedones and very few inflammatory papules and pustules, please don't put them on antibiotics because it won't do anything. These patients really need keratolytics such as cell acid and lipohydroxy acid, extractions, which are performed by a skilled dermal therapist, uh, and this can be anywhere between two to four sessions depending on uh, their severity. But ultimately, acne needs retinoids. So vitamin A derivatives or retinoids are the number one, two and three most important ingredients for all acne types, Regarding, regardless of whether they're inflammatory or non-inflammatory, we need retinoids, which I'll touch on in a moment. But adjunctive skin care, such as keratolytic moisturisers and cleansers, are also very important. And these are the key ingredients we're looking for, salicylic acid, glycolic acid, and LHA. So what are the retinoids that we use first line for acne? This is the list of the currently available topical retinoids in Australia, and I have put in blue the top two that I use personally. That's Epiduo Fort, uh, which is a product by Galderma, and Acnatac gel by Viatris, which contain Adapalene and benzoyl peroxide. Epiduo 4 is a private, on a private script, and it only costs marginally more than Epiduo, which is on the PBS, unless, of course, the patient is a healthcare card holder or a pensioner. Epiduo 4 contains 0.3% adapalene, which is a later re- uh, generation retinoid, and it is incredibly effective. What I want to point out is that in nowhere on this slide do I, can, do I list benzoyl peroxide or BPO by itself. Because BPO is not a retinoid, it's an anti-inflammatory and antibacterial agent that is incredibly drying and incredibly irritating. It certainly can help inflammatory acne, but used by itself, it makes no difference to the long-term natural history of acne. It is critical that any topical prescription you prescribe contains some retinoid. Epiduo, different, and Tretinoin are all valid options as well. I choose Epiduo for it because of the highest strength of Adapalene. It's comparable... Um, if, sorry, it's com- comparable uh, ir- level of irritation uh, to, to um, Epiduo. And I choose attack for the patients with mild, uh, more sensitive skin who simply cannot tolerate any BPO at all. The newest uh, topical retinoid on the market is trifaratine or Acleaf, uh, which is yet to be determined in my mind as where it sits in terms of the hierarchy of topical retinoids. But what we know, it's, it's being marketed for patients with significant truncal, so back and chest acne. The key... Points here is that all topical retinoids are irritating. That is a fact. When you combine them with benzoyl peroxide, they're going to be even more irritating. So I ask patients to use moisturiser before and after their topical retinoid application. My favourite moisturisers are Lipica Balm and CeraVe Cream. And these are both fantastic products that are at a very reasonable price point because the point is that patients before seeing you and I have spent hundreds if not thousands of dollars on useless skincare and we need reasonably priced products that actually are very effective. I use the retinoid three times a week to begin with and I slowly increase it to five to six times per week depending on the patient's tolerance. I use a gentle soap-free cleanser once a day because we know that soap is also drying and irritating. Ideally, they'll contain some ingredients that will boost their efficacy in terms of anti-inflammatory action. Therefore, I use cleansers with a bit of zinc which has got good evidence and niacinamide as well. But I'll also always warn them about the bleaching and drying and irritating effects of benzoyl peroxide and approximately 40 to 50% of patients just won't tolerate the epigO4, in which case you need to move on. You review them after three months and move on. Comedonal and papulopustular acne all demands good adjunctive skin care. This boosts the efficacy of what we're doing medically. We know that benzoyl peroxide is irritating and it just by itself does not address the key pathogenic factors of acne, that being the hyperkeratosis and the sebaceous hyperplasia. So the key ingredients we look for are salicylic acid, lipohydroxy acid, and glycolic acid. The problem is that when you pair these ingredients together with active um, ingredients such as adapalene and and some benzoyl peroxide, it can be quite drying and and irritating, so they don't need to be used every day. So three three to five times per week for ingredients such as glycolic and lipohydroxy, and two to three times per week for salicylic acid, if you're using it in conjunction with the topical retinoids. When they're used by themselves in the, in the patients who um, have not attended a general practitioner or a dermatologist, they may be used more frequently. These are the sorts of products. So the Effaclar range contains all of these ingredients. The, Effaclar, the green Effaclar is the micro peeling, so this contains 2% salicylic acid. And this can be very effective as a keratolytic at a very reasonable price point. But again, shouldn't be used every day if you're pairing it with something like Epiduofort or, um, uh, or Acnatac. The Serum concentrate is a combination of glycolic uh, and lactic acids. So antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics. This is what I see patients being present, uh, attending our clinic with having been on months, perhaps even years, of doxycycline at low doses, minocycline at low doses. In my opinion, and I'll be very clear, this is my opinion and not necessarily something you'll find in therapeutic guidelines, antibiotics are only indicated for inflammatory or cystic acne for a maximum of four months. If a patient is failing to achieve the goals, as Freddie mentioned earlier, they need a plan. So they need a plan B post-antibiotics, and antibiotics should never be used by themselves because they don't address the key pathogenic factors of acne. They don't address the hyperkeratosis and they don't address the sebaceous hyperplasia. They should always be used in, addition, in conjunction with topical retinoids and um, should never be used alone. My, my Go-to regimen is pretty high-dose doxycycline at 100 milligrams BD for six weeks, followed by a daily for another six weeks. I always warn the patients about gastritis and photosensitivity. In certain women, they will, it will trigger candidiasis, so I always warn them about this and elicit a history. I actually surprisingly get very few patients having side effects to doxy if taken with a meal and a large glass of water and adequate sun protection. They're the three things you have to communicate verbally and put in writing Otherwise, they will take it on an empty stomach and cause severe gastritis and esophageal uh, problems. Hormonal acne all acne is hormonal. it's, all, it's an androgen dependent process, so to sort of it's a very common sort of misconception that there are certain people for whom uh, androgens are relevant and certain people for whom they're not. The reality is that this is a genetically mediated hypersensitivity problem to the androgens. And this can present in patients with normal androgens when you test them and abnormal androgens. And the key is, the trick is here to identify those patients with abnormal serum androgens. The telltale signs here are irregular menstrual cycles, noting that for the first five years, post-manichae, women's cycles are quite commonly irregular. So this is not a diagnosis, like PCOS is not a diagnosis of the early teens, um, but looking for other signs of hyperandrogenism, such as female pattern hair loss, which I surprisingly see in women as young as 17, 18, 21, um, and hirsutism, a personal or a family history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And for most of the GPs here, we'll be very adept at identifying the phenotype of the patient with PCOS being a slightly larger, slightly hairier individual with a personal or family history of PCOS. These are the investigations that I do uh, to screen for uh, abnormal hormones, including the um, 17-OH progesterone for congenital adrenal hyperplasia and an early morning cortisol, if clinically warranted. A word on the oral contraceptive pill. This is not a good long-term treatment for acne and, in my opinion, should never be prescribed as a standalone treatment for acne. As mentioned earlier, um, the number one, two, and three most important ingredient is retinoids, whether it be topical or or oral. And the combined oral contraceptive pill really should only be employed for patients if there's another reason for them to be on it, such as they need it for contraception, they need it for cycle regulation, uh, dysmenorrhea or painful periods, or heavy periods. But if a a female patient presents to me not on the oral contraceptive pill and they don't have one of these uh, four features... There's no reason for me to use it in that uh, patient population. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the most common problems I see, and and I'm sure Ash and Francis will agree, is the later onset of acne, late 20s, early 30s, when females get off the oral contraceptive pill and their acne goes mad. And unfortunately, that group of women are often coming off the oral contraceptive pill because they're looking to start a family in which case retinoids, as we all know, are contraindicated because they are Category X. So we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place with those patients. So the take-home message here is please don't prescribe the the pill as a first-line treatment for acne. If they need it for another reason, fine, but still use a topical retinoid. The systemic retinoids. so low dose isotretinoin is, is obviously what we as dermatologists turn to very regularly because we know how beneficial it can be in patients with chronic acne, whether it's cystic, which is what the PBS criteria is, or whether it's mild papulopustula. It if to be on the PBS, they need to have cystic acne. It can be p- uh, prescribed as a private script, whereby the price difference is about a few cents. If they, unless they have a um, healthcare card or a pensioner card. But the reactive is the re- reality is we now use it in patients with moderate to severe acne, those who have failed antibiotics and topical therapies for four months, and that which is starting to scar. Because obviously, once they've developed scars, this is. Almost impossible to improve without spending thousands of dollars on laser. We use them as low dose regimens, particularly um, because they are much better tolerated. So, gone are the days of the the 40, 60, 80 milligram doses uh, because these are simply too toxic for our patients. They cause a lot of side effects, and the reality is the relapse rates are very high. The research shows that the low dose regimen is equally as effective in terms of those high dose regimens, but in my Personal experience, the relapse rates are much lower and it's much better tolerated. So it's very common for me to have patients on doses as low as 10 to 20 milligrams, starting three times a week, slowly up titrating to maximum of 20 milligrams daily. I do occasionally still prescribe the 30 and the 40 milligram doses, but these are by far and away the exceptions. The adverse effect profiles are actually incredibly low. So the side effects that you see up here, the liver, the cholesterol, I never see. The headaches and myalgias are very rare. The xerosis, the chelitis, that's the dry lips and the photosensitivity are very common and that will happen at low doses, but they're incredibly well-tolerated with good adjuvant skincare. So to to end this presentation, we ask all of our general practitioners and pharmacists to really explain to patients that there's no need to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on their acne. To, To first of all see a general practitioner who will give them the time and give them the knowledge that they have to adequately manage acne in the, in the community with topical retinoids and oral antibiotics and recommend good evidence-based skincare, but also to refer those patients who are really heading towards low-dose systemic retinoids early. And we also asked general practitioners to consider referral for comedone extraction, which is sort of a little-known phenomenon. It's certainly nothing you learn about at medical school. It's nothing you really even learn as a dermatology registrar. It's not until you're actually in the uh, big, bad world practising that you realise how important these are. These can go straight to our dermal therapists, and we're very lucky at Southern Dermatology to have a crew of currently two and soon to be three dermal therapists who do this day in, day out, and patients see uh, for themselves the impact that it can make. So it's very uncommon for me to see acne patients regularly because once we've got them on the appropriate treatment plan and we have a finite end date, they then are left to see our dermal therapists and our dermatologists, dermatology nurses and are very happy. So that's the end of my presentation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Download your acne assessment tool and feel free to request La Roche Posay and serivi samples and further information as part of this podcast please visit www.healthcert.com and click on the blog link for more information and the resources